0: But it's good to be back. It's lovely to see you always feel strange coming back because you feel like you've been gone a long time and then you feel like you haven't even gone at all. I don't know if anyone feels like that. Deja vu. But God is good. Why don't you grab your Bibles? I've been uh, excited and encouraged just to hear some of the testimonies that have been happening uh, over the last few months. It sounds like the Lord has been doing lots of wonderful things. I pray that to be the case. Uh, But for this morning and for the next little while, we're going to actually jump back into our series in the book of Romans. For those who followed along the first uh, portion of the year, we made it through to the end of Romans chapter 8. We hit pause. I did tell Adam he was very welcome to continue the series through Roman. He said, no, I'd much rather do something else. Felt led to do that, which is totally fine. But we're going to pick up where we left off, which is Romans chapter 9. Continuing this series, I have to throw our minds back to three months or so ago, and I'll try and bring us back to speed and then pick up where we left off. Are we ready? We're good to go. Let's pray, because we all know we need the Lord's help. But Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your will and purpose. Thank you that you are always doing things, whether we see it or whether we're not. We give you the glory and the praise for all that you've done, even this morning and we pray lord as we turn to your scriptures may they go forth with your anointing with your grace may they accomplish all that you desire for the glory of your name king jesus may you be honored that's our desire above all else is to see you made great in us through us in this place to see you lifted high open our eyes afresh to see you that we might love you more completely that we may burn for you ever more brightly, we pray. In Jesus' wonderful name, we say amen. 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 Let's see if we can remember how this thing works. Are we there in Romans chapter 9? Just like hopping back on a bicycle, they say. So we'd finished Romans chapter 8 remembering that this incredible book written by the Apostle Paul is set out as this incredible theological glorious proclamation and declaration of the gospel. What is the gospel? And we've talked about what the gospel is. We've talked about and examined its necessity. We've proclaimed its power as we've worked through. We've surveyed its unrivaled, unparalleled majesty. In fact, the end of Romans chapter 8 was a good place for us to pause because it marks this transition in the book of Romans Paul kind of wraps it up after proclaiming the gospel with these five pillars of truth, these five proclamations and statements. He says at the end of chapter 8, so if God is for us, then who could be against us? How will he not give us all things? Who will bring, who, who could bring any charge against us if he's declared us? To be in his favor. Who could bring any accusation against us? Who could possibly condemn us? And then he finishes with this reality of what could ever separate us? What could ever separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus? And all of that leads to this proclamation as he begins that we are more than conquerors. Now I know that we've got to remind ourselves sometimes of that, don't we? We don't always feel like more than conquerors. Sometimes we feel like we're barely scraping along just to make it through. But that is who we are. This is the, the, the glorious wonder of the gospel as we partake of it, as we allow the truth of who God is and what he has done transform our heart and our mind. So that's where we ended at the end of Romans chapter 8. It's called by many this high point... Not only the book of Romans, but many theologians would say of the entire New Testament. Well, the good news is we move from there, from this high point, into this portion of the book of Romans that many people skip over. I won't ask for a show of hands. How many people, as you've studied over the years, you get to Romans 8, you enjoy it, you savour it, and then at best maybe quickly kind of shuffle through the next three chapters to get to some of the the practical stuff towards the end of the book. But... there is there is some challenging thoughts in the next few chapters Romans 9 10 and 11 there's this different tangent that Paul is taking and I'd set it up for us this way before we jump into the text you know perspective is incredibly powerful and important one of the things i've always appreciated and enjoyed most about having a holiday of any sort having a break of just getting out of the routine is the perspective that it brings. It, it reveals to us how easy we can get caught just with our little version of the world, the way that we see things. And as we've traveled, we've been able to expose our children to some incredibly different perspective. Uh, I remember traveling through some uh, fishing villages in Asia, going to this, what we would consider probably a quite rural and poor area. And as we went out there in these uh, villages that are built on stilts, it's, it's incredibly picturesque landscape, but these very simple buildings. And at one point, as we were there, the girls said, David, you need to go to the bathroom. So we said, no, that's fine. That's okay. Can we please find a bathroom? We conveyed that in English, and the girls went into this little hut that was the bathroom, and I saw them. They, they came out looking a little white, a little shaken up. I said, what's, what's the problem? They said, Tad, there's no toilet. There's just a hole in the ground. It's just the ocean. I said, Dad, what do we do? I said, well, don't fall in, because I don't know that I'm going to be swimming after you, but you see some of these experiences that are so different than our perspective. And then on perhaps the other extreme, we happen to be in southern France, a little place called, in the Australian pronunciation, would say Cannes, Carnes, I think, or something like that in the French. Any French speakers? Anyway, this, this very opulent uh, southern French Again, be- beautiful vista, and unbeknownst to us, it was the, uh, the Cairns Film Festival. So, all of the who's who of celebrities had gathered there, and we were walking through the streets that had sections of the town, it was all cordoned off. We first cottoned on that something was on when we saw these police escorts and guards. They were outrageous dresses. You know, something that looks like it fell out of space. This incredible dress. I don't even know how the thing works. And then, of course, Jeff Bezos comes sailing in on the world's most expensive ever sailing yacht into the harbour to join with the celebrations. And the girls were, Dad, do people actually live with this? And you say, well, yes, perhaps not what we'd consider normal people, but there is extremes of life, isn't there, that we see all around us. All that to say it's, it's helpful for us to have some perspective. And really what Paul is going to do in this chapter and the following chapters is, is he's going to try and awaken particularly his fellow kinsmen, the, the Jewish people. The gospel had come and they, they've missed out. They're so caught up in their, their little narrow expectation of the way things should work as they believe it should work. And he's trying to shake them up and it's, it's confronting But he's trying to give them some greater perspective. So, so far we've looked at the wonder and the glory of the gospel. And what he's he's now going to do is take a, a backward step and say, well, let's examine the glory of the gospel, but in the context of the greater panorama of God outworking this wondrous gift of salvation in human history. In fact some people as i said some would skip over it some theologians really wrestle through the importance others would say well no this really is perhaps the most critical question that Paul addresses in the book of Romans not in any way to undermine or undervalue the importance of salvation. And we bask in perhaps a reformational reading as Luther rediscovered salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, thinking that's that's the high point. That's what Romans is about. And it certainly is about that. But Paul's going to say it's not just about how we get saved, but it's about how we fit that salvation. How does that work? Within this whole context and notion of God calling Abraham, the Jewish people, his promises to them. So that's the mission. We're going to kind of go through this little old school exposition. Let me you grab your Bibles, read with me. We're going to get through some text this morning. Get your Bible reading in for the week and pull some things out. So this is Paul's broader perspective. This is salvation in the context, the broader context of God's working in human history and the first, watch for this as we go through, the first perspective that Paul is saying we need to grasp, if we're really to see from the perspective of God, we've got to be aware of, we've got to be assured of the sovereignty of God. That's the big picture here. Let's explore together this little issue of the sovereignty of God and how that outworks. Chapter 9, verse 1. We're ready? Um, we will try that again. Are we ready? Okay, fantastic. check. checking. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. Let's just pause there for a moment. So what's he saying? We begin the chapter with this impassioned plea. Paul is not writing this from a place of anger. He's writing this from a place of grief. He's saying this is God's purpose. And God has done so much with his people. But there is a question that needs wrestling through. And he's preempting as he goes through here the question. The question is, well, has the word of God failed? What, what happens to his promises, the promises that he made through Abraham to his people. So this is an important question that does more than stir emotions. It raises these profound issues. The issues are this, how could the gospel be true? That's what Paul is saying. He's proclaimed, for this, this is the truth. This is the truth. How could it be true if Israel had rejected it? Remembering that the Messiah was to come from The nation Israel, this people, they were awaiting this promised Messiah, but they've rejected this Messiah. Now, he'll go on and say, well, they haven't all rejected it. In fact, he's an example of someone who has not rejected the Messiah. He has accepted the Messiah as the one promised in Scripture. That's the question. How could the gospel be true if Israel had rejected it? And the other question is like it. He says, well, how could God then be faithful to these promises that he made all the way through Scripture if he has seemingly turned away from his chosen people. If he's gone down another tangent, how could he still be this God who claims to be faithful to his word? So that's what he's wrestling through. Let's look at his answer. He says, It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who were children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. But this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, now I should have warned you, this, these next few chapters, they're going to take a little bit of working through. These are not light on um, fairy tale, fluffy issues that Paul is wrestling through. So I need us to kind of think through this together. Remembering this question, so he's saying, well, has the word of God failed? What about his promises? And he says, absolutely not. The word of God has not failed for this reason. He's saying God's promise still holds true because, as he says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. In other words, there is two lineages in play. There is, if you like, children of the flesh, but also children of the promise. So Abraham had two sons, and one of them, Isaac, was the one through whom the promise of God continued. Does that make sense? So we, we, we get and we develop, and you'll see this as we go through the next few chapters, this physical Israel. this children of the flesh, if you like, but this spiritual Israel. Now, both are mentioned and both are in play at different times. So in other words, what he's trying to point out here, the promise of God has not failed because the true children of God, the true Israel, are not those who've descended from Abraham physically, but those who have the same faith as Abraham. And that's how it is through. Abraham's been used as an example, the faith of Abraham. where to have the faith of Abraham who believed in the promise of God. It's the same access that we have to God's outworking is through faith. Alone, by grace, through the work of Jesus Christ. So the center, here's the point, the center of God's work is his promise. God's choice or election, and in these examples we see particularly for Rebecca, it's not always the most logical choice. Before they were even born, these twins, God chose the younger, not the older, to be the one who would inherit the promises of of God. It is God's choosing. So there's a few questions, isn't there? Hopefully there's a few questions and Paul will preempt some of them, perhaps not all your questions, but here is his question. It says, verse 14 of chapter 9, well, what do we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So that is the question. If God simply chooses, then isn't that unfair? If God chooses some and not others, isn't it unfair? That's, that's a logical question. It's a question that we should, if we're resting through this test, text, we should be asking. Let's see what Paul answers. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on the human will or exertion, but on the God who has mercy. So far, we're probably all good. Probably good, but bear with me. Verse 17, it's going to get more intense. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. We're getting a little nervous because we're wading in some very interesting territory here. But let's unpack this a little bit. If God simply chooses, isn't it unfair, is the question. And he's saying, well, absolutely not. First of all, because God is God. I mean, he can do whatever he wants. He makes the rules. He is the rules. But secondly, we've talked already about God's promises flowing through his sovereign choice. And the whole point of God's choice was that it was never about merit. Never once. Never once did salvation come to anyone because God saw them and said, Well, Tony, you've got a little bit of promise. I think maybe we can... Work. Never did he look at any of us. And because of something that we had done to earn it, did he say, Well, here I might make my gift of grace available. Now, if you followed along in the sermon series, that should be beyond any shadow of a doubt that none of us are deserving. God is God, and he gives mercy to whomever he decides to give mercy to. And for all of us, that's not because we deserve it. That's because of the goodness of his grace and his majesty and his mercy that he offers us anything. See, what is not fair is that anybody should be deserving of his salvation. None of us are because of our merit and because of our works. It is the free gift of of God, Peter 1, it, it talks about the angels. I always love this description. The angels looking on in wonder at the unfolding of salvation. You know, never does it say that they look on in wonder of God's justice and his judgment. His, his, never. I mean, they know. They know that there's right and wrong. They know he's a holy God. That's not what amazes them. It's not his judgment. That's what we're all deserving of. It's the fact that he would give anyone mercy. That we all stand completely undeserving of his grace. And yet despite our unworthiness, he offers to us the most incredible gift we could ever receive. We're with with the, the train of thought so far in some description. So hopefully up to this point, we're like, okay, maybe we've wrestled through a little bit, but we understand what is going on. God's working is, first of all, the story of him choosing, of not choosing us. It's his free, of not us choosing, it's of him choosing us, not us choosing him. It's his free gift of grace offered to undeserving sinners. We're okay. We're okay so far. But there's a second portion to this passage here. And it'll expand us in this way. We need to ask the question, well, how far does this sovereignty go? We're talking about the sovereignty of God. Talking about his plans and purposes being unfolding, unfolding and unworked in the world. How far does it go? And this is where it gets a bit interesting. Verse 17, we're given this example of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, of course, was this ungodly ruler that the Lord used, as Paul says, to display his glory because of the hardness of his heart. And it's this fantastic tension there where we've moved from God's choice relating to offering a free gift of mercy versus now the other side, God's choice in raising someone else to display his judgment and his justice through the outpouring of his judgment and wrath and punishment. This is where we start to feel this tension. Not only has he chosen some for his promise, he's raised up some, judgment, and so the logical question, let's continue on and we'll come back to that. Don't worry, hopefully end in a good place, Lord willing. Verse 19, so he's, he's given this example of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And he says in 19, well, you will say to me then, why does he, being God, find fault? For who can resist His will. See, that's the logical question. Well, okay, if that's the way that God works, if he's truly sovereign, he's given a free gift to some, but he's clearly used Pharaoh in this example, hardening his heart to display his judgment. Well, aren't we all just products of his will? Aren't we just robots that go about accomplishing whatever he desires without any say in the matter? That's the logical question. Now, the answer is no. We are not just pawns in this divine game. Paul is not removing the necessity of human responsibility. In fact, the next chapter will talk a lot about the fact that continually God pursued his people and continually they chose willingly to reject. Even the example with Pharaoh, do you know if you read that account, you can go back this week and have a look. The first five times that God approaches Pharaoh, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. From the sixth time onwards, it's interesting, there's almost this transition where it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So even there within this example, we see this tension between the sovereignty of God but the responsibility of man. Now, I would say this, there is a tension and there should be a tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. That's a wonderful debate that's been raging for 2,000 years. You can have a lot of fun, grab a drink, And spend night after night debating and debating the intricacies and where we draw the line between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. But there is a tension. And Paul recognizes that. And he doesn't resolve it. He addresses it without giving any kind of resolution to it. But there is a tension. There is something we need to wrestle through here. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He, he kind of summarizes it. He says, there's only two kind of people in the end. There's those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Thy will be done, or God says to us, thy will be done. So Paul is not removing the necessity of human responsibility. Don't read that into this passage. What he is doing is he's using this example to show the futility of arrogantly opposing the purposes of God. That's what Pharaoh did. God called him through Moses and let my people go. Continually he hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. And ultimately, what happened, even the arrogance of man, even the sinfulness of the human heart, he says, in Pharaoh's life and as the sovereignty of God plays out, even that would be used as a display of the glory of God. That's the thought. Our lives will give God glory. Either way, the end result is God's glory. Either through our obedience and humility and choosing His will or through our prideful rebellion and choosing our own will, and him saying, let your will be done. Either way, his glory will be shown and declared, and forever we will stand in awe of his glory. So here's the end result, is that God has seemed to be superbly sovereign in his dealings with man in ways that wonderfully preserve his control, but retain the dignity with which God allowed man to. When he created man in his image. Now we'll wrestle a little bit more through this next week. But this is the tension. The sovereignty of God. And Paul is going out of his way to point that there is this overarching reality. There is this perspective. If you're to view things rightly, there has to be this undeniable reality of God's sovereign work and his dealings with humanity. So how do we maintain this tension well? God's responsibility, uh, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Let's again turn back to one more portion of Scripture and see how Paul lands it. So you will say, he says, verse 19, how can he find fault? Aren't we just following his will? Who can resist his will? Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will that which is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not apart from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, And her who was not my beloved I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. You say, well, thanks very much, Paul. How does that explain or shed any light on anything we've just read? Remember, we're asking ourselves the question, how do we maintain this tension? He's clearly portrayed and proclaimed the sovereignty of God. And really, he concludes with this. He says, here's where I land. He's addressing the tension, but he's not specifically resolving it. He's saying, we have the opportunity, effectively, to look at these circumstances from one of two ways, either from the bottom up or from the top down. From the bottom up means we start with us. We start with the problems around us. And inevitably, we end up with nothing more than us. And a God that we fashioned in our own image. And Paul is talking strongly here for this reason. Remember, he's talking to his people. And he's saying, guys, this has been the problem from the very beginning. God comes on the scene and he calls you to come and worship him. And what do you do? You just reduce him down to your own image. God continually sends the prophets to call you back. And what do you do? You continue to turn his law into a license to to sin and indulge the flesh. God comes himself in the form of Jesus Christ. And what do you do? You've, you've crucified him continually. He's, he's strongly imploring his people, saying, you, you need a bigger perspective. You, you're continually missing the point because somehow you're approaching all these things through the lens of your own eyes rather than stepping back to see, actually, this is the sovereign plan and outworking of God. If you start with you, you'll end up with nothing else other than you and a God fashioned in your own image. Though we might never resolve fully the tension, if you start with God, you've started in the only possible place to find any lasting answers. Who are we to question Him? That's not our job to try and fit Him in to our parameters. Our job is to try and ask Him to fit us in His parameters. We're supposed to be transformed into his image, not us trying to transform him into our image. That's where we get in trouble. Now, he's not saying that, well, man is nothing but a powerless lump of clay. That contradicts the rest of what he has said through the book of Romans with the object of his affection and his desire and his delight. He saves us not reluctantly, because but because he's pre- predestined us and purposed us in his heart to receive adoption as son. That, that's... Don't misinterpret what he's saying here. He's not saying that man's a powerless lump of clay. It contradicts everything else that we've read in Romans and will read. This is the main point of Romans chapter 9 as Paul is proclaiming this truth. He's lifting the bar. He's trying to give us this, this new perspective. He's saying, stop in your prideful arrogance thinking that you have all the answers. Start upholding the unquestioned absolute sovereignty of God, that he's sovereign over the universe, that he rules all things, that his throne is settled and established, that it cannot be shaken by the affairs of men, that his kingdom rules, that he reigns, that it's in his sovereignty that he's chosen before the foundation of the world, a people. That it's in his sovereignty that he takes a rebellious Egyptian, that he uses his pride and arrogance as a proclamation of God's glory. It's in his sovereignty that he works with a hard-hearted, stiff-necked people and uses as we'll find out, even their rejection of him to accomplish his purposes and plans. That it's in his sovereignty that he ultimately takes an undeserving humanity, that's you and me, and offers them grace and mercy to forever proclaim his glory now there's one aside we've got room for just i know it's a bit heavy and intense one little aside that paul doesn't specifically deal with here in romans when we're talking about the sovereignty of god and that's what do we do then with the issue of sorrow of pain what what do we do with the issue of suffering how do we explain that because I mention it because it's when it comes to sovereignty, one of the greatest stumbling blocks for many people. What what do we do with that? If God was really sovereign, then why is there pain? Why is there sorrow? Why is there suffering? And I would say that is such an important question to wrestle through. It is, and we don't have time this morning. That's all right. I'll I'll give you the brief version this morning. Um, You could spend an entire sermon series on this. But I would suggest there is only one worldview, there's only one perspective that ever is able to make sense of pain and sorrow and suffering, and that's Christian worldview. So the only way to make any sense of it is if somehow, in some way, there's a greater purpose. The example that, that I use, I know I've used it before, is with my uh, precious little kids. There's been quite a few times I've had to take them to hospital for different surgeries for different things to happen. And two of them had this particular issue with uh, tonsils. If you've ever had any surgery on your tonsils, you know in some ways it's not a major operation, but at the same time it's in your throat and it's just not nice and pretty. And one of my girls in particular has major issues and phobia with needles and doctors. And so it was all we could do to get her even in the hospital. Like she was beside herself and both instances the girl said, Dad, we want you there. I said, I'll be there. Like, I will be there. I'll be holding you the whole time. But we, we, we settled her down. We finally got her calm enough to, to get her into the room. And they're supposed to put a drip in. Even then, we had to, to settle her enough, calm her down to give her the gas mask so she'd be calm enough to get the drip in so they'd be finally calm enough to do. I mean, it was, it was a, an ordeal. It was a horrible ordeal. And you feel terrible as a parent. In the moment, it makes no sense. Why am I subjecting my child to this? Like, what's, what's sort of a horrible? You, you feel horrible as a parent if you've been through that. The only thing that makes any sense or a purpose in the midst of that is knowing. And this is what I continually reassure. I, I know it's I know it's hard. I know it's horrible. But this is actually for your good. This is important. This is this is needed. This is necessary. And what I can assure you is, I am with you. I will not. I am with you. I will not leave you for a moment. And I didn't. It's was 24 hours in hospital. I stayed overnight and I just cuddled her, held her the whole time. See, only, only the Christian worldview gives us any kind of purpose. And, and it's not even a purpose that somehow suffering is, is because God wants to just do things in us. See, the greatest, the greater purpose of suffering is not that we would suffer, but that he would suffer for us. That's the heart of the Christian message. The centerpiece of the story is the cross. The Savior who was beaten, bruised, bleeding and dying on a cross, taking upon himself our suffering. This picture of the sovereignty of God, the evil of the world, our sinfulness and the matchless love and mercy of Christ all colliding at the cross. So in the midst of the sovereignty of God, suffering proclaims his story. It proves and demonstrates his love, because that was the heart of it, that he would suffer for us, not that we would suffer. And it continually points us to his promise. There's hope. 1 Peter puts it this way. It says, in this you greatly rejoice. It doesn't sound very joyful, but it says, in this you rejoice, 1 Peter one six, though now, if necessary, he says, You may have to suffer grief in various kinds of trials, if necessary. We don't don't go looking for it, but he says "You you may find it necessary that in this broken planet there is brokenness around us. But you rejoice in the midst because even then the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Could have been a moment for an amen, but we'll move on. The point is this, even here he's saying, even in the midst of various trials, even in the midst of struggle and suffering, even here he is at work. In the midst of his sovereign choosing, he is at work. In the midst of the pride and rebellion of the human heart, he's at work. In the midst of judgment, he's at work. In the midst of suffering and sorrow, he is sovereign and he is at work. He's at work. Let's get Ali back up or the band, whoever's coming. Let me just finish with an illustration, try and bring this together. I promised my kids I wouldn't tell too many stories about the trip. I'm sure they'll... They'll filter out in the fullness of time. But for a large portion of our trip, we hired this, uh, this camper van. I mean, to fit six people, you need a decent-sized camper. It was seven and a half metres long and whatever it was wide, which travelling through Europe is a challenge at the best of times. But we were doing okay. We were kind of sticking on the highways, not doing too bad, until we reached this little area, Tuscany, Italy. If you've been there, if you haven't, Put it on your bucket list. Just this beautiful spot. But we got a bit adventurous and we kind of headed off the beaten track and first couple of days were fine. We'd found these picturesque little villages. There was you know, some narrow roads, but we'd navigated it okay. And then on the third day, uh, we had this idea. We thought we're going to go and explore these Tuscan hot springs. Fantastic. So we looked it up on the GPS and all the way through the just the normal um, Google Maps had, had been totally fine. We're taking us where we needed to go, no problem at all. You just follow along and all of a sudden we're in this area, it must be a little more off the beaten track. But the GPS completely failed us. Like there was roads appearing that were not on the map. This thing was taking us through roads that looked like it went through the middle of the paddock. So it starting to stress a little bit and panic, but I kind of saw this road and thought, well, this looks like it might be the path. So we headed down this road, and it got narrower and narrower. And Now, it's, it's reasonably steep. It's not like the Swiss Alps, but you've got some decent rises and, and, and falls. So we're heading down this ever-narrowing road, and then all of a sudden round this corner comes a flying Italian. If you've seen how the Italians drive on the road, you know exactly what I mean. There's this screech of brakes, and he pulls up right in front of me. This is a single-lane road. So he jumps out of the car, and he's yelling, and the girls are like, Dad, what's he saying? I said, I don't know, I think he's speaking French. I think think that's what he's doing. Came over the window, I said, I'm sorry, sir, I don't speak French, I don't speak Italian, do you speak English? And he spoke enough to let me know in no uncertain terms that this was a one-way road. It's like, you are halfway down a one-way road. You need to go, go. I said, well, could you move and I can, no, you you go. I mean, there was nowhere to turn around. So I hop back in the car, I'm reversing this seven and a half meter camper backwards up this hill around corners my wife was running alongside trying to yell instructions mainly went okay story for another day all the while this Italian French man was there I think he was just encouraging me along the way keep going, you're doing a great job keep going, keep going we finally pulled out and this guy gave us a Bit of a friendly salute as he headed past and then we were back on the road i'll tell you what, we're all a little bit <laughs> shaken as, as as a result of this adventure a little bit too much adventure but the funny thing was i mean i i, I had the gps but all of a sudden i'm like i, I cannot i cannot trust the gps i've got no idea I mean, it's kind of exciting nothing but the man sense to navigate through the wilds of italy but no, no map to go by. Now, by the Lord's grace, just to finish the story, we did eventually find our way to these hot springs. I had an extra long soak just to try and settle the nerves and off we went again. The point is this. We think, well, what, what does this actually mean for us? God, God is sovereign. He's at work. What does that mean? How does it impact and affect our daily lives? And I would say this, in a far greater sense than just a general GPS directing us, there is this incredible reality of God's sovereign hand. In a far greater sense, God is sovereign over the universe. There is a certainty that we can trust his plans and his purposes being outworked. Even here, he's at work doesn't matter where it is you find yourself. If you're in the midst of anxiety and confusion, if you're in the midst of doubt and despair, even here, that's the promise. That's our assurance. Even here, He is at work. And we can take a moment not to just rely on our own senses to hopefully find our way through, but to look up with joyful, confident expectancy. Lord, your will be done. I don't even know what it looks like, but I know the direction that I'm setting the sails. We get to say, your will be done. That's what he taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your... What a trick question. Your will be done. That's what we pray and proclaim. It takes us from anxiety to peace, from uncertainty to certainty, from fear to faith from discouragement and disappointment to joy. And people say, well, hang on a second. What about your diagnosis? You say, well, I, I, I know there's some uncertainty there, but there is a certainty. He is God, and he is good. And he's with me, and he's in control, when it looks like it, when he's not. Because say, Well, what about all the stuff happening in our nation and internationally, and the governments, and the, the rising persecution? We get to say, well, hang on a second. You know, the psalm says, he who sits in the heaven, he laughs. He's he's looking, he's saying, why are the nations raging? Are you kidding me? He who sits in the heavens laughs. What a great picture that is. If only we could do that as we look around at the raging of nations. (laughs) I'm seated with him in heavenly places. His will is being done. What about the rising interest rates? What about the cost of living? We notice that even a couple of months away, you come back. It's gone through the roof. What are we gonna, How are we going to survive? Well, hang on a second. Haven't you seen the way he cares for the sparrow? Haven't you seen the way that he dresses the lilies? Haven't you seen the tenderness of his care? So my prayer for us this morning is not that just we leave with some kind of theological ahead knowledge of, A God who sovereignly works through human history, that in itself would be would be good, be worthwhile. But it's my desire that we and my prayer that we leave assured, that we leave encouraged, that we leave awakened to who he is, and that we leave compelled to live, to live with confidence every step. I'm just following his will. That's my prayer, Lord. Your will be done. Your will be done. Every moment lived in the light of His goodness, His grace, His purposes, His plans, and wherever we need it, it's the prayer to pray, Lord. Just give me that perspective, Lord. I'm caught up here; all I can see is this. But just take me higher. Let me see what it is You're doing. Amen. Quick, pray. Would you close your eyes, Father? We thank you for this reality of your absolute sovereignty we thank you that you are the king who is on the throne we thank you for that invitation that you give to us to live with an awakened expectancy to lift up our eyes the king of glory may come in well that's our posture and that's our prayer today and i want to pray particularly lord for for any of us here this morning, whether it's one, whether it's many, and we're having an issue with our perspective. Maybe it is we're focused a little more on the, the diagnosis, a little more on the, the problems. Maybe it is we're, we're caught up a, a little too much in the plans and the schemes of the enemy. We don't want to be unaware of what's going on around us, but we want to be so much more aware and consumed by your purposes and plans. What it is that you're doing, laughing at the schemes of the enemy. Lord, maybe it is. There is that genuine fear of, Lord, I don't don't, don't know. I don't know how I'm going to make it through today. I don't know how I'm going to deal with this obstacle. Pray that this morning there'd be a moment to move from that place of fear to faith. To move from that place of discouragement, disappointment. To know afresh your joy, your peace that passes all understanding. I pray that we would be secured afresh.